Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, the show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. If anyone who is listening to this would please consider becoming a monthly donor to 350 Colorado, that would be awesome. They are a lovely organization doing some fantastic work. On to the episode. All right. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I am very excited to have Mr. Duncan Gilchrist on the show. So, Duncan, thanks so much for being here, man. Of course. Thanks so much for having me, Ethan. It's an absolute pleasure every single week, always something new to learn. And we love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you guys be doing what you're doing at the moment. Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Duncan Gilchrist and I'm currently a climate policy analyst with 350 Colorado. Um, I've been thinking about and sort of working on climate policy um, for over a decade now. And I, I know that sounds kind of wild because I'm 27. But um, when I was 13, I remember watching Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth for the first time. This was like the sort of first major documentary that was produced on climate change. And um, it really rocked my world. I mean, I I remember just being this young kid and um, sort of, you know, my family was pretty sort of outdoorsy. So I, I had a pretty strong connection with, with the natural world and nature and, and just hearing about the way that our current, our sort of modern society is drastically shifting the composition of earth's atmosphere and the resulting effects of that. Um, it was scary. I remember being like afraid, like, Oh my God, like this is, this is terrible. We have to do something about this. And um, I brought the documentary to my social studies teacher because I wanted him to watch it. And um, I thought, you know, it was a really compelling sort of overview of, of global warming and its effects. And so he ended up watching this documentary and after he watched it, he felt similarly compelled by it and brought the documentary to my middle school administration. What grade are you in at this time? This is uh, eighth grade. Cool. Yeah. And um, he, and so my middle school administration, he asked them if, if we could do a, um, an assembly to show the documentary to the entire middle school. And it ended up happening where every seventh and eighth grade class of my middle school had an opportunity to watch this documentary in our school's auditorium. And so I remember just sitting in the auditorium thinking like, wow, this is happening as the result of, of my passion and my interest and my, like my sort of emotional reaction to, to what I learned. And um, it was really empowering and sort of beautiful to see um, the effects of that at an early age. And I think that was really a watershed moment for me in realizing that like, yeah, if like a handful of people care deeply about something, a tremendous amount of impact can flow from that. And so that was really a watershed moment for me. And subsequently um, went to American University in Washington, DC and studied international environmental politics. Um, Had the opportunity to study abroad in Copenhagen, Denmark for a semester um, when I was a junior during my undergrad. And um, my program in, in Copenhagen was sustainable development in Northern Europe. And we got to sort of travel around to some of Europe's leading cities and talk with professionals in the climate policy field who were, um, you know, working on the sort of technical aspects of, of decarbonizing these rich countries. Um, and yeah, graduated from American University, came to Colorado, 
you know, I've worked a variety of sort of jobs within progressive nonprofits, um, doing political organizing and um, clean energy advocacy. Uh, most recently got my master's in public administration from CU Denver. And um, I'm now working for 350 Colorado. Yeah. Well, hell yeah, man. Dude, way to kill it on the first question. That, that was awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much Thank for sharing. You. It definitely gives a background on, on who you are. Um, and then you were, you're from New York, right? I am from the Hudson Valley. Yeah, that's really cool. That, that story about how, you, yeah, I totally believe that one person can totally make a difference. And I think some people don't appreciate that enough. And that's definitely a message I'd love to spread. And I think that's what you guys try to spread at 350 Colorado a lot as well. And it's so true. I mean, even when I attend like an online event and there's like 20 people, just having one extra person there who's like paying attention and smiling, you can see like the rest of the people notice and, and like it. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, what brought you to the West side of the U.S.? Great question. Um, yeah, I think, you know, after um, when I was 22, graduating from college, I moved back to my hometown in New York. And um, it was just sort of felt like I had like, didn't want to be there long term, it sort of felt like a step backwards. Um, I love the Hudson Valley. But um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to expand and um, expand my horizons. And i had actually lived in Colorado when I was a toddler, my dad went to CU Boulder and got his master's degree here. So some of my earliest memories actually are, um, are from Colorado. And there, I felt like this sort of um, desire to, to go back. And I had a couple of buddies living out here too. And so kind of just sent it out here, like so many people. <laughs> and um, another sort of impetus for me coming to Boulder specifically is just Boulder's reputation for being a sort of world-class leader in sustainability and climate. Love it. And so I, when I came here, I sort of immediately immersed myself in, in the community of people in the city who are, who have been working on climate and um, helping our city sort of make progress towards its climate targets. So, yeah. Yeah. There's some kind of magic about this area. Like someone asked me the other day why I decided to go to school in Boulder. Why did I move to Colorado? And then I, I left, I traveled all around Australia and Europe and I, you know, I'm from the East coast and I don't even know how to explain it, but it's like something inside me said to come back here. And I, I didn't even know, like I've said multiple times in the show, I didn't know how much of a climate oriented place Boulder was, but you know, that it vibes with me very well now, obviously with what I'm doing, but yeah, there's just something amazing about this place. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have you here, man. And I wanted to ask you how you think kind of the state of Colorado can set the example for climate leadership nationwide. Cause I keep talking to all these amazing people based in Colorado who are working on these issues, like nose first, you know? Yeah, for sure. And um, I think Colorado is is on its way towards being able to sort of truly say that it's a leader on climate. But there are a couple things that I think hold our state back from really being able to fully embrace that title. I think for one, um, we can't ignore the fact that Colorado is one of the United States's largest producers of oil and gas. Um, mm -hmm. We are the seventh largest producer of natural gas and the fifth largest producer producer of oil in the country. And so um, we cannot be both a climate leader and one of our country's largest exporter of fossil fuels. Um, it's, it's that simple. We can't be um, claiming to solve a problem that at the same time we are continuing to perpetuate and profit from, in my opinion. Um, 
It's like, it's kind of like, I, I use this metaphor and I, I don't think I was, I coined it myself, but it's like saying that, you know, I live in a cigarette free household because I don't smoke cigarettes, but then going and selling massive quantities of cigarettes to my neighbors that prolongs their dependence on tobacco. That's not leadership um, to me. And so I, I get it that it's, you know, we live in a um, sort of pluralistic society and not everyone um, views fossil fuels as a problem. And a lot of people, you know, um, I don't know, not everyone is convinced that we need to be rapidly transforming our economy in order to meet our climate mandate. And I get that. Um, but yeah, in my mind, it's just sort of like this split personality that Colorado has that needs to be reckoned with. Um, yeah. So, so that is, that is one thing. There are others too, but you know, we can sort of start there. Well, thank you for sharing. And it reminds me, so Micah Parkin is the founder of 350 Colorado, which is the organization you work for. And I was really honestly blessed and honored to have her on the show. She was basically my first actual like guest. Like I had three friends on, then I had my own episode and then Micah came on. And if she's listening, Micah, thank you so much for coming on. It was amazing to speak with you. One thing I remember kind of pushing back uh, on her in the in our episodes reminded me of what you were just talking about is so the U.S. used to be like an importer of foreign oil. And that's kind of how we used to power stuff, if I'm getting my history correct. And I just I just can't help but think it's it's if if someone's going to be extracting the fossil fuels, wouldn't you want it to be like in your own hands? Like I know so that at least if we're taking it out, we can control how much we're using and then kind of use the the, the, the system that's in place now to kind of slowly or not. You know, we both you and I want it to be rapid, but to kind of then transition into clean energy. Now, I know I, I, I totally get what you're saying, but I just kind of wanted to bring this up because it's like if, if anyone's going to be doing it, you know, I don't know if you know what I'm saying or not. I do. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And I like, you know, I appreciate when People. It's hard to not be a hypocrite in this world, you know. Yeah. It's it's so much yeah. pressure. It's terribly hard, and yeah, and of course we have to have patience with ourselves and and with each other as as we, you know, try to achieve our climate targets. I mean, this is no easy task, and there are going to be trade offs inevitably. And of course, we have a certain current sort of level of dependence on fossil fuels. No one no one denies that, right? But what we're advocating for is that the state set goals to begin a managed decline of oil and gas production over the next Absolutely. decade. And, and so there, there's a lot of data out there mounting that is showing that doing so is actually um, like e even without state intervention, it's a possibility that this will happen naturally anyway. So it's mm -hmm. really not, we're not asking for anything radical. The markets are already tending towards a decline in oil and gas production but we are, we are asking for um, that to be a specified target so that we can plan accordingly because there are a lot of things, there are a lot of benefits that our state gains over the next decade through a managed decline rather than letting the market just fall bottom out and fall out, fall apart and production. It's a good stop point. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, you know, talk about sort of preparing for the cleanup costs of Colorado's oil and gas industry. We have an opportunity now through the 700 series financial rulemaking at the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission to advocate for stronger financial assurances from oil and gas companies to ensure that when companies inevitably go bankrupt, if they haven't already plugged and remediated their oil and gas production sites, the state has the funding to do so. 
But right now we only have 2% of the total cost of plugging and reclaiming Colorado's oil and gas production sites covered through financial assurances from the industry, 2% of the cost, which means that if the whole industry went bankrupt tomorrow, we'd be, we'd, we would have to find, you know, funds for 98% of the cost of plugging and, and, and sort of cleaning up Colorado's oil and gas production. So with a managed decline, you know, we are afforded an ability to prepare for remediating the sort of socialized cost of oil and gas production that we're going to, that otherwise would, I mean, it's just, we're going to be left with that mess. Yeah. Um, without the funds able to pay for it. And then t- we can talk about just transition too. like with a managed decline, there's much more of an ability to, to provide a plan for the, for the workers that are going to be laid off who are already being laid off absent sort of heavy regulation. Um, so yeah, yeah. We can go on about that, but that's, that's how I would respond. It's a lot of dense, complex stuff for sure. You know, and it's proposed policy. I, I know you guys are doing a lot of great work at 350. Put, I've been seeing live events on Facebook. People should definitely check them out. A lot of cool people. I know Marlo, who's on the show, was just on a youth event for 350. And they're talking about these complex issues. It's very confusing to me, to be honest. I, I just don't have the, the answers. And I'm looking for them yeah, desperately to kind of figure out what we could do. I guess I wanted to ask you more about like a local, a local level thing, like your yeah. experience with clean energy action in Boulder. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually am no longer on the board of clean energy action. Um, but I was for, for two and a half years and, you know, I'm still like a very close ally of clean energy action. And, um, I just, I say, I I only have so much spiritual energy to devote to an existential crisis. And so now that I'm full time as a client policy analyst for 350 Colorado, um, I just, I just need to have that little bit extra free time in the evenings to like get, you know, get peaceful and you've uh, earned it, man. <laughs> yeah. So cleaner Jackson's incredible though. And um, yeah, Leslie Glustrom, who's the founder of cleaner Jackson is a sort of climate champion in Colorado and um, is a mentor of mine. And she has sort of led the, the fight to um, bring about a future free of fossil fuels. Um, and yeah. And the city of Boulder um, you know, one of the sort of major issues and that's people have, um, been focusing on for the past 10 years is this conversation about, should we have a city run utility that's sort of owned and operated by our city government, or should we stick with Excel as our primary electricity provider? Mm-hmm. And so recently that sort of case was closed. Right. The past the most election one. Yeah. City of Boulder voters um, approved a franchise agreement with Excel, which effectively put a stop to the municipalization effort. Um, but yeah, I, I have been a strong proponent of municipalization since I lived here, or since I moved here like four and a half years ago. And I'd be happy to talk about why. Um, it's not really an option that's on the table effectively at this point. So it's kind of similar to what we were just talking about, though. I think the safest hands are, are our own, as Captain America would say. But, you know, things aren't as, aren't as simple as that. I guess, all right, Farron, I mean, we've talked about municipalization on, on this show for sure. And I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on cleaner injection. And I love Leslie. So give yeah. her a shout out, Leslie Glustrom. Um, yeah. But how do you think the will of the people can kind of stand against these large corporations like Excel? I know 350 is all about grassroots. And we'll talk about your role as policy analyst shortly. But I wanted to ask the kind of more broad question uh, and your thoughts on this. Absolutely. And I'll start by saying that, um, 
you know, as, as, a, as a policy analyst, I try to think about the ways that through policy, we can solve multiple problems at once. And um, in the United States, um, it's sort of a simple fact that, uh, you know, corporations have a tremendous influence over the democratic process and um, have a sort of free, unfettered ability to translate money into political influence. And that's for, you know, a variety of reasons, but um, so you what I think that? about it, yeah. What'd you say? Is there any way to stop that? Yeah, there are. There are, so <laughs> many, there are so many ways to stop it. We have, we know exactly what we need to do. That's a conversation for another time. It's not it a is. mystery. It's just a matter of, man, I mean, the corporate class is in, incredibly powerful. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry a, to I'm interrupt. I'm Sanders guy. So, I mean, I, you know, nothing sure. against companies. I work for a company right now too in my free time. Um, Trader Joe's. I think Trader Joe's is a fantastic company and um, fabulous peanut butter. <laughs> yeah. And fabulous employee policies too, I will say. Anyway, that's a sort of tangent. Um, I try to think about the ways that we can solve other problems as we are addressing climate change. And I think that municipalization was an opportunity to pioneer a new model of energy governance where um, citizens would have much more of an effective influence over the way that we procure, distribute electricity. And that's because a municipal electric utility is run by a city government, which is, you know, a, a sort of public institution that's in essence beholden to, you know, the electorate. And so there would be, um, you know, different municipal utilities across the United States have sort of citizen boards where you have volunteers um, that come together to ensure that the utility is being run in a way that really benefits them, themselves, their neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so with Excel, we see like um, almost a diametrically like opposite energy governance model where we have a massive, one of the United States largest utilities um, making all of the decisions. And ultimately they are a, they're a private company. They're accountable to their shareholders and they are regulated by the Colorado public utilities commission, which instead of being a local level agency that, you know, that I, as a citizen of Boulder could, could go and, and talk to the person who is working for that agency. They may live a couple blocks from me. Right. Instead, we have the Colorado Public Utilities Commission, which is a state agency. You can't really participate in the Public Utilities Commission unless you are a lawyer or can afford to hire a lawyer. And so it's this, it's this energy governance paradigm that's just far less penetrable to the average citizen. And so that's, to me, the essential difference is like, you know, we'll get, we'll get to 100% renewable energy either way, but how can we get to 100% renewable energy in a way that's empowering people to participate in the in creating the vision of how our energy system should look? Absolutely, that's a, and that's a great transition into talking about 350 Colorado again, which is the group that you work with and one of my favorite uh, nonprofit organizations. So, what do you exactly do as a climate pon- policy analyst at 350 Colorado? Yeah, so. I view my responsibility for 350 as sort of um, developing our organization's 
sort of policy positions on different rules, regulations, and laws that are currently being considered at the state level. And so right now, um, our state executive branch is busy implementing our state's foundational climate law that was passed two years ago. Mm-hmm. So the legislature passed HB 19-1261, which set climate targets for the state of Colorado and handed the implementation authority to the Air Quality Control Commission, um, which is an executive branch uh, commission, part of Colorado Department of Public Health and the Environment. And so the authority of the Air Quality Control Commission is is to, and the, the legislative directive was to develop rules and regulations that effectively um, lead to the emissions reduction targets that were established by the law. And so now, and for the past two years, and, in, and for the next year, or for the next foreseeable future, the Air Quality Control Commission is, is developing regulations that are meant to help us get reach our climate targets. And so 350, our involvement in this sort of state level policymaking process has been um, to ensure that the rules and regulations that are being developed are actually gonna get us there. And they're gonna get us there in a way that's equitable and they're gonna get us there in a way that fosters um, a just transition and um, leaves us little room to, to fail <laughs> at reaching yeah. climate targets. And so Indeed. specifically, you know, I run our climate policy committee um, we have a committee of, you know, 10 to 15 citizen volunteers who um, collectively were sort of, we research uh, policies that are being considered and develop recommendations. And then from those policy recommendations, we turn that, that into sort of communication materials and we hand them to our army of citizen activists who go and deliver messages within public decision-making venues to try and advocate for, for strong climate policy. Duncan, thank, thank you so much for doing this work, man. To me, like, I, I love hearing that you're doing it, but I'm like, oh, God, I would never want to do any of this yeah. government policy stuff. So yeah, I really yeah. appreciate you, man. I appreciate you coming on the show as well. What are some, like, notable accomplishments by 350 Colorado that you've seen in the last year? You've been with the group two years? Is that right? No. So I've actually been at this position for about um, three months. Okay, awesome. So I'm fresh, but, you know, I'm familiar with 350 and I knew Micah before I was hired. You know, we've collaborated on things in the past. Um, Just the best. Yeah. I, you know, 350, a lot of what we do is um, focused on building a grassroots movement. And so we really do have our fingers in um, like pretty much everything that is happening. Um, we have teams across the state that are working really hard on local level issues. Um, you know, I would say one of the, one of the things that I'm pretty proud of uh, recently is, um, you know, my climate policy committee, we sort of led the, uh, the development of this joint comment that um, was en- ended up being signed by 35 plus organizations on, um, and, and submitted to the Air Pollution Control Division on the state's draft greenhouse gas emissions inventory. And so we recently submitted this pretty massive comment that was signed on by a lot of groups um, to the Air Pollution Control Division focused on how the division can sort of improve its draft greenhouse gas emissions inventory. Um, Because now now that the comment period is closed, they're going to work on finalizing it and publishing that later this year. So we developed a really comprehensive comment that was 
really we were just trying to help the ABCD do its do some of the of the legwork and its homework around um, you know just imp improving the draft into a final version. And so that's a good example of sort of what my my policy committee does. Fair enough. Uh, I'm curious how, so that's interesting what you're doing. I'm curious how like the grassroots stuff will relate to like actual policy changes in the long term. How does, how does that work or how, how does, what is like the vision of 350 Colorado when it comes to that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I would say like our sort of organizational theory of change um, at present is trying to combine like good analysis and uh, with, with grassroots power. And when you have citizen activists that are armed with facts, that's powerful. I mean, that's a powerful recipe for, for change. And so um, that is where our, our power comes from. You know, we, we do our best to develop um, evidence-based, you know, advocacy points on, on the different climate policy issues under consideration. And, and then we ha hand those messages into the hands of, of our volunteers. And we have a massive volunteer base. I think it's 20,000 across the state. Well, actually 20,000 um, people who are sort of part of our communications network, but um, yeah. And you know, there, is, there are a lot of opportunities for citizens to have their voice be heard by our state government. So we do our best to really turn people out, mobilize folks, you know, at the Air Quality Control Commission's monthly meetings, at the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission um, public hearings, you know, within rulemaking process, um, through written comment, uh, through petitions, et cetera. Really cool. How would you advise someone who's, you know, busy individual, they got, they got work, they got friends, they got family, they got a whole life to manage, but they're, yet they're passionate about these issues. How would they, how would you recommend that they get involved and feel like they're making a difference? I would say get involved in, in my committee. I would make a pitch for my client. Hell yeah. Hey, let's hear it, man. Hell yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I, you guys are doing great work. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, we do our best and it's, it's not without, you know, flaws of course, but um, yeah, we're, we're doing our best. And um, yeah, my, my committee, we meet uh, once every two weeks and um, yeah, and we're always taking on more volunteers. We're sort of just like a group brain that um, does our best to uh, really move the policy conversation forward in different ways and to make sure that we are truly solving the problem that we we say we want to solve mm -hmm. um and so yeah i would just say you know um volunteering sometimes um people have a different idea about it than what it is uh sometimes it's yeah sometimes it's a little bit different than what you would imagine but but ultimately you know in, in any way that you want to get involved um you can get involved i mean um if you if advocacy is your thing like you like reading two minute statements in front of decision-making officials, then there's so much for you to do. If, if you're more of <laughs> an true. analyst and you like yeah. diving into technical policy documents that are like 50 to hundred pages, there's plenty for you to do. You know, if you're you, selling it, man. Yeah. And if you like writing like letters to the editor, you know, plenty for you to do. So really like it takes all of us and whether it's 350 or a different, you know, there are so many climate focused environmental nonprofits in Colorado that are doing fantastic work and, and 350 collaborates with a lot of them. Um, you know, if it's not 350, it's another organization, so be it, but we don't have any time to waste. If you're passionate about it, put that passion to work. It's, it's really rewarding to do yeah. so. 
And I think you and I can both attest to the fact that we truly believe one person can make a huge difference. That one letter you submit or policy that you kind of help create can change your local community, if not uh, the whole state. So it's really important for people who are passionate to, to like to get involved. And now I have something I'm really kind of excited to chat with you about because you're, you're essentially um, a career climate activist. Would you consider yourself that? Yeah, I mean, I would say I'm not so much of an activist than like a, a policy person. Like I like reading and writing and researching about solutions. Yeah, but well, I'm I just very, meant like you've like, been passionate about these issues. Yeah, sure. For a long, long time. And yeah. I'm like, I've kind of like fallen into this world because I this because I, I feel like it's a necessity. Like it's something we need more and more people who are actually working at these issues as their career. And I just wanted to kind of ask you as someone who is involved, I know I talk to a lot of people from different nonprofits and some of them are retired and are involved with it, but it's, I just met, it seems to you like your career is based on trying to help the climate. Is that, is that not fair? Yeah. And it can be super overwhelming, man. Like that's kind of what I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask about like the pros and cons of pursuing a career in this because we're telling people how they can get involved on their community level. But, you know, you could always take the dive and commit your, you know, your full career to this stuff. And I just wanted to get a conversation going about pros and cons to that because there's definitely it's so fulfilling to be working on something you're passionate about. But when the challenges are so overwhelming, it can like get to you. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and ultimately, my perspective is like there's nothing more. There's, there's not a better way to spend this sort of short life that we have other than taking responsibility for something and devoting your life to it. And so, yeah. I mean, to the, it's, it's as frightening of a challenge as it is a meaningful challenge. And so, you know, those two things are in proportion to one another. And um, yeah, I mean, burnout is a, is a really real thing and it's, because when you start reading some of the IPCC reports and you read the articles that are written from those reports, I mean, it's very easy to fall into a sort of spiral of, of climate anxiety because, I mean, anxiety is fear about the future and climate change gives us an infinite number of reasons to be afraid about the future. <laughs> and mm. So it's almost impossible to avoid feeling anxious about climate change when you start thinking about what could happen. But Ultimately, if we want to be effective agents in bringing about a sort of prosperous, low carbon, stable future for civilization on Earth, it's our responsibility to develop mastery over our emotional response to that information. Because if, if we just simply let our emotions run rampant, then we become less effective, right? And so I've developed strategies for doing that. You know, I, I do try to take time off. Um, from work and from thinking about climate change and, and, and do lighthearted stuff. And um, ultimately, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of meaning and beauty in like building a world that, you know, is better. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so it's, it's almost like, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's frightening to think about the potential future, right. With sea level rise and climate migration and, and wildfires. And it's just a destabilizing of this, the sort of natural foundation that human civilization is built on. I mean, that's, it's apocalyptic. Who likes to think about the apocalypse other than, I don't know, people who read apocalyptic (laughs) fiction. (laughs) Yeah. Um, No, it's, it's terrifying. Um, 
but it can be like invigorating at the same time because if you feel like you're the white knight who's out there you know stopping the evil it can keep you powered and it can like for example for me i can work like many many hours in a week because i'm so passionate about what i'm doing you know absolutely and i do kind of want to push back on this idea that like it's about individuals because i mean i've found that like that's sort of a myth to me i mean i, I that, that was like a popular archetype uh, like 10 years ago which is like the climate hero right it, when when climate change wasn't so much like this issue that has been propelled largely into the public spotlight at this point after years and years and years of completely ignoring it by our federal government um that that was like the archetype right it was like this person that has the facts and is sort of sounding the alarm about climate change but now it's like we have to transition to a new archetype for what like leadership looks like and it's it's organizations it's ecosystems of groups i mean it's a collective really because um yeah no no individual on their own is is going to and i find that like people who are really good at working with other people and, and organizations that are really good at collaborating with other organizations, those are the heroes to me, the people that yeah. are sort of doing it like without the need for ego gratification. Um, and so I found a lot of meaning in sort of being part of the organizations that I'm a part of, which is again, another source of the sort of joy around this stuff is like, there are so many people that care about this and, and there really is a community of people that I'm, I'm friends with that I, I, I you know, have a lot of compassion and um, just like fondness for that are people that I've been working on this issue with. So to me, yeah, I think, um, I don't know. Yeah, for I, sure. No, for yeah. sure, man. I'm picking up what you're putting down. There seems to be a kind of renaissance of I don't even know what to call it of, of nonprofits. Like the, it seems like the nonprofit space has been growing more and more and more in recent times. And is, there is this way to, I'm trying to find a way to stay like economically focused and make sure that the money is flowing into the places it needs to be for the good of everyone. But I'm not, I'm not sure the right way to do that. I'm trying to do it by like donating money to nonprofits, but I don't know. It seems more, the more, the key is the more and more people that get interested and get involved in these communities that are promoting ideas that you believe in, the more, more change that can happen. Um, it's, it's been great talking to you today, man. Um, I just, I guess I wanted to ask your advice on how, how to deal with like climate grief and, and stay optimistic amidst all these challenges. Um, cause I'm like submersed in it all the time and, and it gets like super, super heavy. And I, I do, I do tend to think that a lot of it is like the COVID, like being involved with a community of people in person, surrounded by them, all working on the same issues and all having fun and being optimistic about it could be the solution. But we're not, you know, I just got my first vaccine. So we're not quite at the whole, you know, hundred people gather again. So what can people kind of do on their own to stay positive? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think your point about how do we manage climate anxiety? I mean, that's such a crucial question. And um, I, I think mindfulness, right? Like just being aware of bringing awareness to our emotions as they arise is really a really powerful exercise. And um, yeah, just labeling, labeling the emotion when you, when you start to feel it, um, it, it loses its grip over you and you can sort of detach from it a little bit. Um, so honestly, like meditation is like, is huge. I mean, to not let your mind just get away from you. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of wisdom that sort of Eastern uh, ways of liberation offer to the climate fight. There's a lot of wisdom that like indigenous uh 
you know, knowledge offers to like, to that question, to how to answer that. Um, yeah. So just like looking, looking to with like, um, traditions of wisdom, honestly, it's, it's kind of wild, but like, yeah, like For real people that have, um, that have answers as to how we can, I don't know, lives. find sanity within the chaos. Right. <laughs> yeah and i think whatever kind of calls to you is the one that the community that you should get involved with like for example when we talked about moving to colorado earlier it's just i think that we are we live in in such a cerebrocentric society where we get our grades and we have to finish our assignments and we create these policies but there is something to be said about following your feelings or following your heart as people put it to kind of get you towards the right path and keep you level and keep you sane um really really cool talking today man i guess the last thing i wanted to ask before you go is about your your instagram page um, cause, cause like, I feel like using, am I correct? It, it, Duncan, Duncan Gilchrist. It's the one with all, you had all the artwork that you post on Instagram. Oh right? yeah. Oh, I do have an art Instagram. It's yeah. Just my last name and then my first name. Gilchrist. No, it, it's, it's cool, man. And I, and I can see your emotions in your work. It's just very interesting. And like, I, I, I figured you would say that like using art is a way for you to kind of cope with everything that's going on. Oh my God. Totally. I mean, yeah, I don't really know what else there is to say about it. I will, will. Yeah, we'll we'll say check out his Instagram because he has some really really cool drawings. Um, that that's all that's all I got to ask you today, man. It's it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for the work you're you're doing. Um, I love 350 Colorado. Uh, I want to get more involved, but I want to do it in person. So I got my second shot coming up. I'm hoping that these events are gonna come back. What what do you think, man? Is that happening? Going to be happening in person again or what? I don't want to live in a world where it doesn't that doesn't happen, right? Like yeah. <laughs> I'm so sick of Zoom and texting and, and phone calls. And I, I, I miss, I mean, I think, yeah, our in-person social networks are just this like, this like holy thing to me now, right? That you yeah. know, living, oh, living yeah. life and doing democracy over Facebook and Instagram has proved an utter failure. Uh, <laughs> I think that's one thing we can all agree on. So yeah, I can't wait. And um, yeah, thanks so much for doing this, man. I think um, one thing I would say is like, Keep like I, I liked when you sort of pushed back on on one of my ideas, and I think something that is becoming a little bit rare these days is like the ability to have a sort of free conversation where we can push back on each other's ideas and ask critical questions without fear of uh, of retaliation. I think so. Keep you know challenge people on what they say because I I I appreciate that. That is an opportunity for me to really challenge my own ideas and. I think that's a huge value of what you're doing in addition to just giving people a platform to really talk about some important stuff. So thank you so much for doing this. You're very welcome, man. And that comment, uh, I appreciate that a lot. I really do believe in the value of discourse and I want to bring things up and and have interesting conversations. And I don't want us to feel like we are what we say. I want us to feel like we are kind of what we do. So in the long term, you know, I'm not who I am on the inside, but what I do that defines me, right, Duncan? It's a Batman quote. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. You're, you're chock full of quotes. I'm chock full of them, man. All right, everyone. It, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today, man. Uh, I'd love to chat again soon. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Ethan. Have a great one. You're welcome. All right, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate, the official podcast of Climate Change Realty. If you are very passionate about these issues and you know anyone considering buying or selling a home anywhere in the USA, then please visit ccrboulder.com today.